Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I'm back with Hank. We are continuing our Church Fathers discussion series between me and Hank, and today we are talking about Tertullian, and probably this will be the first of two episodes about Tertullian. I think um, in this episode, we're going to focus on sort of laying out his biography and talking about the impact and influence of Montanism on Tertullian and other and other people in early Christianity, and then as well as talking about um, Tertullian's beliefs about the Trinity. Um, Tertullian wrote so much <laughs> that that he and he is seemingly really influential and important in some surprising and unexpected ways that um, unlike the previous church fathers that we discussed, we decided that he probably needed to be broken up into two episodes so that we didn't make any Wagnerian operas um, that could outdo Paul Vanderclay's uh, video links. Um, so, so Hank, uh, do, do you want to uh, give us uh, some of the high-level overview facts about uh, Tertullian? Sure. It's estimated he um, he was born about 150 AD and and, and died 220 AD. Um, most people who study and look at church fathers consider Tertullian the father of Western theology of Latin theology. Um, Right. He, he, he's, the, he's the first theologian to write major theological works in the Latin right. language. All previous church fathers that we've discussed, and most of the ones that we will discuss, wrote in Greek, um, but he was the first one writing in Latin. Correct. Um, he was from North Africa, um, which um, for, for anybody who's looking at church fathers, most of your the intellectual heft of the church came from North Africa or from what we call Turkey today. Mm -hmm. um, he's definitely a North African. Um, he's a, he was a very strong combative type of man. Um, yeah, well, he, we'll get into that. We'll, we'll read a couple of quotes and, and that comes across yes. pretty quickly. Yeah, he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, um, uh, um, he doesn't, um, he doesn't hold any punches. He doesn't, have, yeah. Now, something I found interesting was he was very influential on a saint. Tertullian himself is not a saint in either the Eastern or the Western church, but he was very instrumental in, uh, in the thought of St. Cyprian. And uh, being that he's from Carthage, there's a far more famous uh, church father that came from Carthage. That would be uh, Augustine. And Many people think he had a huge impact on Augustinian theology. Um, so it's, it's, he's a, uh, some things that I looked at, um, uh, Tertullian was the first to disprove that uh, Christians sacrificed infants at the celebration of the Lord's Supper and committed incest. So- I'm not sure if he's the first. I feel, I feel like Justin Martyr in his apology mentioned similar things, but as we've discussed yeah. before, a a chronic accusation against Christians, like yes. a, it was almost like a stereotype or or something like that, or a prejudice against Christians was that they sacrificed children, that they committed cannibalism, and that they committed incest. And oftentimes, when Christians were getting persecuted, these were the accusations being thrown out against them. Yep. Now, something else that I found interesting is, in reading him, he he clearly did not like philosophy. 
Okay? <laughs> he understood it, but he didn't like it. And uh, sometimes his his thoughts, uh, Birch, uh, was he he was really into realism, almost on the verge of materialism. Um, uh, so there's the the famous quote. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, right? That's right. probably his most famous quote. And yep. lots of people like, you know, John Verveke or even Ben Shapiro, who are two pretty different folks, will say that Western civilization is basically a balance of Jerusalem and Athens, right? You yep. know, Ju Judeo-Christian theology with uh, Greco-Roman philosophy. Yep. But when Tertullian says, what does uh, Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He means it derogatively. He's saying, yep. get your philosophy out of my theology. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? We're doing theology right. here. And, <laughs> and he, he calls uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, pa patriarchal forefathers of the heretics. Um, so again, you, what you got to learn about uh, our buddy Tertullian is, um, He's going to sound a lot like uh, a, a, a strong fun American fundamentalist Christian. He's going to sound yeah. very much like that. He sounds um, like a. He sounds like sometimes he sounds like a grumpy internet apologist. Like I think that he's basically the same temperament as James White. If you guys know who yeah. that is uh, from the firing line. Yes, um, he was a defender of. Um, um, uh, the uh, apostolic tradition. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, and I think the other thing, let's take a look here. Um, he also, interestingly enough, uh, did not like the idea of once you, if somebody became a widow, he did not think they should marry again. So he's, he's a, um, He's yeah, a very... we'll, we'll get more into that with, with the Montanism stuff um, that, that's directly related to that. Um, a couple other things that I have about him. He was probably trained as a lawyer. Um, yeah. he, was, uh, he was quite well educated. He's very articulate and a good and often entertaining writer. Mm -hmm. If Even if he has quite a sharp tongue, part, he, he makes jokes that, that you can still tell are kind of sarcastic jokes, you know, 1800 mm -hmm. years later. So he, I, he, while well, he wrote Latin and he read the scriptures in a Latin translation of the scriptures. So, right, like Catholics read from the Vulgate, right? That's still mm -hmm. the kind of sanctified translation in um, Roman Catholicism. He had some Latin translation that predates the Vulgate, which is kind of interesting. Um, he wrote a ton of stuff. Like, I think he, he wrote as much content as Vanderclay pumps out. He, we have 31 books from him, which is just like so much more than right. we have from any of the church fathers that we've talked about before. And even these 31 books that we have are probably not even everything he wrote. Um, he, he seems to have uh, been probably independently wealthy. I think he was either perhaps from an aristocratic family or a successful lawyer or both, and that he did a lot of self-publishing. You know, pumping out books back in those days was kind of expensive to publish mm -hmm. books because you would write it by hand. Paper was 
kind of cheap, but not super cheap. And then you would need people to copy it by hand, right? There are no printing presses. If you wanted right. to distribute your book, you needed to have a staff of scribes that would copy by hand and then make new copies. And so, excuse me, I think that he probably had a team or a staff that helped him do these things and he probably paid for it out of his own pocket. Um, he was a, a convert to Christianity. He wasn't raised in the faith. He converted probably in his 30s or 40s. Um, probably, I think the estimate's around 197 AD, he converted to Christianity. And then he starts following what's called the New Prophecy or Montanism, maybe about 10 years after he converted to the faith. So another, another important thing to know about Tertullian is some of his stuff is written before he converts to Montanism. And some of the stuff is written after he converts to Montanism, and he has something of a change of heart and a change of mind on some on some subjects. So it's kind of important to know when the books that you're reading from him are written because um, that that pertains to it. Um, you said he was born in Af he he's born in raised in Carthage, which is the biggest city in Western North Africa, right? Alexandria is the biggest city in Eastern North Africa, and that's a Greek speaking city. Carthage is a Latin speaking city, and you might be like surprised, like why is some city in Northern Africa Latin speaking? Um, like there were the, the Punic Wars, right, which is sort of the wars between uh, ancient Carthage and Rome, right, there's lots of books written about it, that's when Hannibal rides elephants across the Alps and chases around Rome for a while, and at the end of the Punic Wars, Rome just flattens Carthage, they just destroy it. They kill everyone in the city, right? They probably killed a couple hundred thousand people, man, woman, and child alike, and salted the earth around Carthage so that nothing would grow there. And that Carthage, Carthage was desolate for like over a hundred years because of this Roman destruction. But then after a hundred years during the time of Julius Caesar, a bunch of Romans started moving there and repopulated it. And so by the time of 200 AD, when Tertullian's living, Carthage is actually a flourishing city again. So like while, while Tertullian is from Africa, he was probably of Italian stock and would look, I don't know, like an Italian or something mm -hmm. like that. Maybe there were some local tribes like Berbers and stuff like that. And so people aren't sure exactly what ethnicity he is. Um, but he is, you know, born and raised in Africa, but my guess is he wouldn't look that different from like a modern day Italian or Mediterranean person. So um, probably the next thing we should get into is probably the, the, salt, the one of the large reasons why he is not considered a saint by the Eastern or Western church, and that's that monetism. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go in? Uh, I know you've been doing some deep uh, diving into that. so. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I've been reading this book. Um, it's called um, Prophets and Gravestones. It's actually, I, I would really recommend it. It's a, an imaginative history of Montanus and other early Christians. It's sort of like 
it's sort of like a, a, an attempt at historical fiction or something like that. It's a bunch of vignettes that are sort of like historical fiction stories that have a lot of history in them. And so it's not just like reading a dry academic book that's full of historical critical cynicism. It's sort of like kind of interesting and you, you get a bunch of characters. Tertullian is a prominent character in the book, but it kind of goes through the history of the Montanist movement kind of for it and against it. So what was it? So the Montanist movement was um, started by a guy named Montanus, who was a Christian convert sometime in the middle of the second century, probably, I don't know, starting around 150 AD, a guy named Montanus started having very intense prophetic visions. And shortly after that, two female prophetesses named one of their, their Maximilla and Priscilla kind of join him and also start prophesying. And this is centered in Phrygia, right? Phrygia is right next to Asia in, in modern day Turkey, right? And Asia back in those days doesn't mean the gigantic continent of Asia. Asia means a small little Roman province centered around the city of Ephesus that's about the size of New Jersey. So if you go inland from Ephesus kind of up into the Turkish hills, um, you get to Phrygia. And this was sort of like Asia Minor was probably the most thoroughly Christianized place at the time. So it's like kind of like the center of the of the Christian movement. Lots of famous church fathers and apologists and prophets in this case come from that region of Turkey. And so what they were doing and saying, they had very intense prophetic experiences, like they would shake or fall to the ground and stuff like that. And like, you know, speak involuntarily in the voice of the Holy Spirit and things like that. And I think, I think the way to understand, and it wasn't called Montanism back at the time, it was called the new prophecy, right? Um, people who would say, I'm in favor of the new prophecy or I'm against the new prophecy in its time, it was called the new prophecy. And I think really the way to understand this is that early Christianity had a lot of these charismatic sort of things happening, right? There were healings. Like if you read the book of Acts, people are getting healed. There are visions, right? People have prophecies like in the book of Acts, someone has a prophecy about a famine. So they, you know, get ready for the famine. Someone has a prophecy for the person, Paul, as he's beginning his journey, you know, he like brings chains to him, right? So people have visions and prophecies a lot in early Christianity that are not just the books of scripture, right? They're sort of personalized prophecy and they're speaking in tongues and all of this sort of charismatic stuff that was very common in early Christianity from like, you know, 30 AD onwards. And like the book of Revelation itself is a vision that, you know, the apostle John had in a trance. Um, so, you know, like that sort of thing. And Paul talked, the apostle Paul talks about his visions. Peter has a vision of, you know, the animals coming down. So like that sort of stuff was very common in early Christianity. But by the 150s AD, I think that some amount of that charismatic activity, you could call it, had sort of fizzled out and that it wasn't as prominent anymore in mainstream Christianity. I think there was still some. I think it would be a mistake to say that mainstream Christianity was completely 
lacking in charismatic activity. But what happens in Montanism is that there's just this whoosh of new charismatic interests. It's almost like, I would call it like the first revival movement in Christianity, right? Early Christianity doesn't need a revival movement because it is the vival, right? You don't need to revive something the first time. The, the first Christian wave is a whoosh. And then the Montanism is like the second whoosh. And it was very controversial. Um, some, it was received differently in different parts of Christianity, right? By this time in Christianity, like we've discussed this in our last episode with Ignatius, there's already the bishop system where each city has a bishop and underneath the bishop, there are presbyters and deacons like presbyters and deacons help run individual churches and the bishop is over all the churches in a city or in a region or in a, a chunk of the countryside or something like like that but there is no superstructure above the bishops right there are no archbishops there are no popes or anything like that the bishops are very powerful in their own autonomy to make decisions for their own region because there's no authority above them and so it, some bishops are like embracing this new Montanist movement and saying, wow, this is wonderful. People are being healed. The Holy Spirit is still with us. You know, these new teachings that we're getting are wonderful. And some are like, eh, I'm not so sure. Let's wait and see. And some think it's heresy. And so different bishops are making different decisions throughout the empire over how to react to this new movement. And they're writing letters to each other, trying to figure out what to make of it. And it's a whole big hoopla. I don't know if you wanted to, to add some stuff to that. No, I think, I think that's well said. I think that, um, I think for the, for the viewer, you can almost compare it to the charismatic Pentecostal movement that's going on worldwide and right now. Very much, very much. It, it's almost eerily similar, honestly. Right. Some of the parallels between the modern Pentecostal movement and the Montanist movement. And so what we have, so, you know, obviously the church decides that through the discussion with the different bishops that uh, Tertullian is, is persona non grata. Mm -hmm. And from what I'm reading, he he's, so what? I. You know, this is the kind of guy that basically, I'm right, you're wrong, <laughs> fine, okay. Um, but it goes a lot further than that because his writings are so impactful. Um, we can start probably by discussing his, he is the first early church father that does a, a clear expo expository on, on the Trinity. Yeah. Um, but before we get into the Trinity, okay. and he's actually the first writer to use the word Trinity to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but a, a little bit more about Montanism um, that I think, I mean, this is, this is really interesting. So part of the reason why Montanism is controversial is that, I, like I said, the, the church hierarchy of presbyters, deacons, and bishops has been starting to get pretty well established by the mid mm -hmm. to late second century. And bishops are the most powerful people in the church. But what Montanism does is it sort of revitalizes the office of prophet. And mm -hmm. prophets 
or and prophetesses. And this is another really interesting thing about Montanism, is that in churches, deacons could be men or women, I think, right? And that's still true in Catholicism, right? Like uh, there are female deaconesses. Am I getting that right? Uh, I, I haven't seen one. You haven't seen one. All right, well, there's some deaconesses yeah, at least in Nathan, the early church. They, I, they, I'm sure Nathan Heil can 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 illuminate us in the comments. All right, but but deacon is like the lowest level office, right? Right. Uh, and then and they, I don't know, they kind of help out around church. They're maybe in charge of setting things up, and um, they you know help see to people that are in need and stuff like that. Probably in the early church. And then presbyters are probably something close to what we would think of as priests. They didn't have the priests back then. They or they mm -hmm. at least didn't use that word to describe an official church office. Right. I think presbyters were in charge of individual congregations. Um, and then, like I said, deacons are in charge of multiple congregations in a city. And um, what, uh, what Montanism starts saying is that women can not only be deacons, they can also be presbyters. They maybe right. can't be bishops, but also they can be prophetesses. And honestly, the Montanists thought that prophets and prophetesses were of higher authority than bishops, because or at least they, they were a parallel and different kind of authority, right? Mm -hmm. Bishops had administrative authority, but prophets and prophetesses spoke from the Holy Spirit itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the bishops needed to listen to the prophets and the prophetesses. And so I think the part of the reason why you can see that the church is against this is that it's something of a power struggle. And there's a, this gendered component where the new prophecy has a much more prominent role for women. And also just speaking from experience, like I grew up in a charismatic church. Um, uh, I had a conversation with um, Paul Ann Leitner and John Deep Dark Seas from, from the Discord, and we talked about prophecy. And one thing that we noted is that charismatic churches often are way more willing to promote women uh, like charismatic churches are often very theologically conservative, except with regarding gender roles, where they're often much more willing to have women in prominent leadership, because in charismatic churches, what matters for leadership is your ability to display spiritual gifts, and the spiritual gifts seem open to both genders pretty equally. And so, so charismatic churches are often much more accepting of women leadership and women preaching and stuff like that. And you can see the same thing in the Montanist movement. That's one of their sources of controversy is what's the role of women and should bishops listen to prophets and prophetesses or do prophets and prophetesses listen to bishops? What's the back and forth between those two sources of authority? And right, bishops have the authority of apostolic succession but prophets yeah. have the authority of the Holy Spirit itself. So what's more important, apostles or the Holy Spirit, right? You know, you, you can imagine mm -hmm. that that's the tension that's going on. And also the Montanist movement was strict, um, right? Like the mainstream Christian church had fasts two days a week where you weren't allowed to eat certain things and the fast lasted from this hour to this hour. The Montanists would be like, no, you can't eat a longer list of things and the fast lasts even longer, right? And so it's like little things like that that would distinguish a person who followed the new prophecy movement from someone who didn't, right? And like, you know, even while it might seem like a little 
difference like wasn't matter if you fast for six hours or if you fast for nine hours but it signaled which group you belonged to and it starts to show oh i'm loyal to the historical teachings of the church who fast for six hours oh i'm loyal to the new prophecy because the holy spirit's now telling us that we need to fast for nine hours right and you can see little things like that and and you mentioned earlier the question of remarriage it seemingly in mainstream Christian churches at the time, you could remarry after your spouse died. But the Montanists are saying, no, you can't remarry. It's once married, always married. If your spouse dies, you should right. remarry. And they also had a greater emphasis on virginity and chastity, where they yep. elevated the role of virgins. And often virgins would be the prophets, right? Like I mentioned, there's the three main prophets of the Montanist movement. There's Montanus, Maximilian, Priscilla, but there's lots of other prophets and prophetesses. They, they spawn a whole movement and lineage of prophets that start going to all these different cities, right? And they, they go to Carthage, they go to Alexandria, they go to Rome. And there's, uh, for hundreds of years, this split between the new prophets and the people who down-emphasize prophets will, will go on. And really what brings Montanism to an end is during the reign of Justinian, the, the graves of, of Montanus and Maximilian Priscilla had become something of a shrine and a pilgrimage site, right? Their relics were there and people would go and venerate the relics of the prophets of the new prophecy movement. And that site was associated with miracles, right? People would go there for healing and stuff like that. And to try and get the same spiritual blessing that, that those prophets had, like there's a, there's a, uh, controversial activity in some charismatic circles called grave sucking, where people will go to the site, the grave of famous charismatic wonder workers and try and suck the spirit from the grave so that they can have the same spirit that a certain charismatic wonder worker happened. And this happens now in the United States, right? Kind of weird, but something very similar happened. It's almost the exact same thing happened in the Montanist movement. But after a couple centuries, the emperor Justinian, who's like the famous, he's like the archetypal Byzantine emperor, right? He builds Hagia Sophia, he reforms the legal code. He reconquers a bunch of things. He makes Constantinople great again. He um, raises the uh, the pilgrimage site and destroys all the bones. Like they, they burn all of their bones so that there's no relics left and they get rid of the pilgrimage site. And that's sort of the end of the Montanist movement in like the five or 600s AD. So it lasts for a couple hundred years. And, and the, it was also like, maybe the last thing I'll say about it is it was very apocalyptic part of the thing that they had visions about was the end times. And they thought the end times were eminent, right? Jesus was going to come back at any time. They actually thought that New Jerusalem was going to come down in what's the name of the city? Papuza, which is a, a city in modern day Turkey near to Phrygia where the, where the movement started. And you might think, well, that's weird. Why would you think that Jesus is going to come back in some small little town in Turkey? But right around that same time, Jerusalem had been destroyed, right? There was the Bar Kokhba revolt and the Romans go in and they destroy Jerusalem and, you know, make all of the Jews leave and they rename the city so it's not even called Jerusalem. So you could imagine during that time, they might have thought, well, maybe Jerusalem isn't a suitable city anymore for Jesus to right. return to. Maybe, maybe this location is actually, because I think Montanus was hiking one day and he had a vision 
of New Jerusalem coming down at this place. And so they set up their headquarters at the place where they expected Jesus to come back. So they would do their prophecies from there. People would come and get healings from there. They would train new prophets and send them out from there. And they wrote down things that the, the, prof, the new prophecy taught, and they distributed the writings too. There was something called logoi or sayings, right? Which would be books of sayings from the new prophets, which they attributed to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, sometimes prophecy is about the end times, but sometimes it's just about moral behavior or how to interpret scripture properly. I'm actually going to give a shout out to Shelley. One of the things that the Montanists talked about, yeah. Shelley's favorite passage is um, the, the head veil passage, right, in First Corinthians, <laughs> where Paul says that women uh, need to wear a veil on their head, over their head in church, and the reason he gives is because of the angels, right? And it's like, what, 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 what does women wearing something on their heads have to do with the angels? And the Montanists believed that it was because um, the angels were looking lustfully down at women. And that because, you know, there's that passage in Genesis where the angels come down and uh, have children with the sons of men, and it's a whole bad thing. And so they thought that angels looked down at women and lusted after them, especially in church, and so that they should wear a veil and that they should wear a pretty long and big veil. Sometimes I almost wonder if it was something kind of like a burqa or, or something like almost like uh, from Muslim practice. But, um, but anyway, so those sorts of things from, from matters of remarriage to wearing veils in church to the end times, they had their, to fasting, they had their own sets of rules that were normally stricter than the normal church by, it was like, okay, you're this strict, we're, you go 10 yards, we're going to go 11 yards of strictness, right? right? And, As and a matter of fact, if I could interrupt, yeah, this, this really brings saliency home of what you just said. Here's something that Tertullian said, but the thing which is forbidden is freely permitted. I should rather say that what has not been freely allowed is forbidden. Mm -hmm. So he takes what Paul says and he flips it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it interesting? So it, right away, if, if you're a bishop or if you're a church teacher, you're looking and saying, hold it, that's not what the apostle said. You're flipping that around and what you're creating is a stricter yeah version of the faith and and what they would do is they would go beyond the teachings of the new testament because they thought that the holy spirit was still talking to them right and mm -hmm. almost kind of like what we might associate with mormonism or something like that that revelation was still open I don't think they viewed their new revelations as on the same level of authority of the new testament I don't, and they never expected it to contradict the New Testament, but I did think that they basically thought that Revelation was still sort of an open book. And I don't mean the book of Revelation, although they did think that too, because like I said, they, they were willing to have new revelations about how and when and where Jesus would come back. But, um, but yeah, they, and, and this is part of the controversy, right? Christianity is starting to figure out, are we sort of done with our innovative period where new doctrines and new teachings come? Is that in the past or is that still ongoing, right? That's one of the controversies between the new prophecy movement and sort of the mainstream church. And really, eventually, I think that 
the new prophecy, like I said, by the time of Justinian eventually gets shut down. And even by the time of Tertullian, it's starting to be viewed with strong suspicion. Rome has kicked out the, the new prophets, even in Asia and Turkey, where the new prophecy was from. It's like outside of the mainstream church and excommunicated and they've built mm -hmm. their own churches. Um, but I think one of the things that attracts um, uh, Tertullian to the new prophecy was its moral strictness, right? He liked moral strictness. <laughs> and, and he was impressed that it seemingly the new prophecy movement was able to inspire people to live to a higher moral standard. And also another thing that was very prominent in the new prophecy movement is that you weren't supposed to run away from persecution if um, like the authorities were persecuting Christians, some Christians said, hey, just go run to the neighboring town and hide for a while until it's over, right? There's no shame in living to fight another day, right? To avoid persecution. But the, the Montanists said, no, you have to stay. And if the, if the persecutors come for you, accept it willingly and hopefully, right? And so they kind of glorified persecution. And while they didn't seek it out, they never, they encouraged people to not run away from it. And so a lot of the, the um, martyrs in the, the late second, early third century are adherents of the new prophecy because they were more willing to die. And that's part of the way that it spreads, right? One of the ways to win street cred in early Christianity is to produce brave, willing martyrs. And so that's that's another way that its influence spreads. And I, you know, I think we, we maybe I'm about ready to probably move us on, but I think it's also you could see it's a tension between grassroots popularity and kind of hierarchical disapproval. And that's also something very similar to the way Pentecostalism works now, is that it's popular among grassroots stuff. It's sort of a lowbrow church movement, whereas the highly educated and the elite kind of look down on it, where, but mm -hmm. it's popular among the common folk. And I think that was also a similar source of tension between the popularity and disapproval of Montanism back in its day, is it was popular among the lay people and the uneducated, but not as popular among the bishops and the well-educated. But Tertullian is an interesting exception in that he was an educated upper-class fellow who followed the new prophecy, but uh, Tertullian never becomes a bishop. And I think part of the reason why he never becomes a bishop is because he was associated with this new prophecy movement but kind of like, you know, Vanderclay talks about this a lot, like, who's the most important Southern Baptist? Is it the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention or is it Beth Moore, right? Beth Moore has her audience and her own, you know, network. And Tertullian had his own network, right? He published his books, people read his books. He was sort of independently influential over and against the church hierarchy. And I think that's why he was able to follow the new prophecy movement is because he was too big to cancel in the city of Carthage because he was wealthy enough and influential enough that the bishops couldn't excommunicate him. And so I think Carthage had a more lenient stance towards the new prophecy in part because of the influence of Tertullian himself. Yeah. All right, but, and, but I think that's probably, I don't know. Do, do you have some thoughts or reactions to that? No, I mean, I do. Um, I think the reaction is that what we see in our modern day faith is sometimes almost a replaying of something that happened hundreds, thousands of years ago. 
Yes. Okay. We say, holy cow, this is new. Now, I would posit a few things. One is the reason why Pentecostalism or monetism grows is because the Holy Spirit is so hard to understand. Okay. If you, if you look at most churches, it's the Father and the Son. Eh, there's this Holy Spirit out there. I just don't understand it. So we're not going to talk about it. Okay. And it's not talked about and not discussed. And so what happens when all of a sudden people come out and they're, 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 they're seen as living a powerful Christian life through the Holy Spirit, people go, hey, this, this is something that, that appeals to me. Right. You know, especially if you're, if you're right, if you think about it, Pentecostalism is seen as lowbrow. People who, who, you know, the Pentecostal movement that started in Los Angeles over 110 years ago was really done at a mission. Mm -hmm. It was done with the with people who are were down and out. Yeah, and the leader was African American, and you can imagine what that was like, you know, a hundred years right. ago. Yeah. So, um, and what's interesting about Tertullian is, you're right. The guy had a the guy was almost like the William F. Buckley of his day. Okay, <laughs> just a sharp tongue. Let me read. Read. Um, um, I dwell. I do not dwell on philosophers, contending myself with a reference to Socrates, who in contempt of the gods was in habit of swearing by an oak, a goat, and a dog. In fact, for this very thing, Socrates was condemned to death, that he overthrew the worship of the gods, plainly at one time as well as another, that is, always truth is disliked. So where most Christians would say, you know, Kierkegaard says, I contend with Socrates, he's my teacher, right? Tertullian saying, Socrates didn't like the truth. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was a mocker, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, um, like you know, here, here's, here's a sentence and this had, this will maybe help transition us from Montanism to the, uh, to the Trinity. So yeah. one of his most famous books is called against Praxius and Praxius is something like a modalist. We'll, we'll get into what that is. But Praxis was basically teaching that there's one God who is the same person inside the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Like yeah. the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father are all sort of one person together, right? They're right. different kind of outward cloaks of the same one person of God, right? And that's sort of similar to uh, oneness Pentecostalism or various modalist forms of the Trinity today. Yeah. So um, Tertullian writes a book against this guy, and we'll go into a lot into it. But in chapter one, so Praxius is teaching in Rome. And in chapter one, uh, Tertullian says, by this Praxius did a twofold service for the devil at Rome. He drove away prophecy and he brought in heresy. He put to flight the paraclete and he crucified the father. Yeah. Right? That like that that sort of writing is just typical of Tertullian, where he has these really clever, witty attacks. And what yeah. he's saying is that Praxius helped drive away the new prophecy movement from Rome and helped the mm -hmm. Bishop of Rome come out again. Uh, originally, the Bishop of Rome was in favor of the new prophecy movement and was writing for it. And then Praxius comes and helps convince the Bishop of Rome to be against 
the new um, prophecy movement. And I think, honestly, that really turns Tertullian against the bishop system. Is I think what he's saying, I think he's basically accusing the Roman bishop of apostasy for not accepting the new prophecy movement. And so he's saying, you know, Praxius drove away prophecy, which is good, and brought in heresy, yep. this modalism stuff. He put flight, flight to the paraclete. And the paraclete, for those who don't know, is another name. It means like, you know, helper. It's another name for the Holy Spirit. He put flight to the paraclete and he crucified the father because one of the things that Tertullian doesn't like about Praxius's theology is that it seems like the same God who's God the father is the same one in Jesus who gets killed. And so he calls him a patripassionist, a father sufferer, right? Because mm -hmm. he thinks it's ridiculous, the idea that the father is the one who gets crucified. So, so that, that's an example of a lot of his theology and of his kind of rhetorical style. Yeah. And as we, let's uh, get in. It, what I found interesting about Tertullian's description, right, is it's clear he brings up the paraclete a lot. So he, he is, go, he's happy to discuss the Holy Spirit. Okay. He's yeah. not going to, he, he doesn't give, um, he gives as much, much, um, he, he gives a yeah ink to, to the paraclete okay mm -hmm. and so um so he says in in uh later in in the book because i believe the spirit to proceed from him from no other sauce from the father through the son okay mm -hmm. so he's clearly saying hey there's a you know what there the holy spirit is on and that's where on the level of god right he's making mm -hmm. that clear and that's why he's bringing up the Trinity because he's basically saying you guys are playing you're downplaying the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay. and and um, so one thing that you said so he does believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a controversy between the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics mm -hmm. over the contents of the Nicene Creed, and it's called the Filioque controversy. <laughs> Um, right. Because in the Roman Catholic Latin version of the creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? Filioque right. means and the Son in Latin. Mm -hmm. and, um, but in the Greek version of the creed, it just says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? And so this is apparently, some people, is that just a, is that just a difference in words or is there actually a theological difference going on? But apparently this is part of the reason for the great schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Latin Church is whether or not the, the creeds should say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and also from the Son. And Tertullian, as far as I know, is the first um, attestation of uh, the belief that the Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. And um, it's interesting that he's a Latin theologian, right? Writing in Latin. Mm -hmm. You can imagine this influencing later Latin theologians and Augustine. And that can be part of the reason why you could imagine the Latin creed can, keeping that idea in it, whereas the Eastern creed didn't. So, so that's a, an interesting footnote for Trinitarian history that, um, that Tertullian, as far as I know, is the first one to have something like a fili filioque version of the origin of the Holy Spirit. Now, something uh, that I found interesting, um, 
is a, a guy who dislikes philosophy as much as then smuggles it in. Yes. Let me read. He, I mean, he really smuggles it in. Let me read this. For God is rational and reason was in him and all things were from himself. This reason is his own thought or consciousness, which the Greeks call by a term that we designate the word or discourse. And therefore, it is now usual with our people owing to mere simple interpretation of the term. So he's basically saying before the word, there was reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I so found, I found very interesting. It's like, wow, that that's uh, that that right there. If I was to go into any Trinitarian church and say before all was, was God, there was God and his reason. And then the word came through reason. Mm-hmm. I think I would be chased out. Yeah. So this is probably the most heretical um, mm-hmm. aspect of uh, Tertullian's Trinitarianism. And uh, like I said earlier, I should mention this again. Um, Tertullian isn't the first Christian to use the word Trinity. There's a guy, uh, Theophilus, a bishop of Antioch, who mm-hmm. in the 180s AD is the first uh, Christian to use the word Trinity. But he just... He's like, he's making some allegorical interpretation of Genesis. And he's like, you can see that the first day represents God and the second day represents the word and the third day represents the God's wisdom. And these three are a triad, right? Mm-hmm. Tri, triad, trias, like mm-hmm. T-R-I-A-S in Greek is the same word for, it's the word for Trinity still to this mm-hmm. day in Greek. But it's uh, he he says it's the God, his word and his wisdom, and it's unclear if wisdom is the Holy Spirit or not, or if he's just doing some allegorical triple thing. It's not clear if he means the Trinity that we're talking about. But other than Theophilus, who's only writing like 10 or 15 years before Tertullian, Tertullian is the first Christian writer to use Trinity, and in Latin it's Trinitas, that uh, includes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So some people are like, look, man, he's a Trinitarian. Well, it depends what you mean. And so one of the the things that he's most heretical for, so I'm going to read, here's from Against Hermogenes. Um, Because God is in like manner a father, and he is also a judge, but he has not always been father and judge, merely on the ground of his always having been God. For he could not have been the father previous to the son, nor a judge previous to sin. There was, however, a time when neither sin existed with him nor the son, the former of which was to constitute the Lord a judge and the later a father. And that's in against Hermogenes chapter three. And so I'll I'll read from against Praxius chapter seven here um, to get a clearer idea of how he Mm -hmm. understands the son to come into being. There, then, therefore, does the word also himself assume his own form and glorious garb, his own sound and vocal utterance. When God says, let there be light, this is the perfect nativity of the word. When he proceeds forth from God, formed by him first to devise and to think out all things under the name of wisdom, the Lord created or formed me as the beginning of his ways, Proverbs chapter 8 then afterwards begotten to carry all into effect. When he prepared the heaven, I was present with him. Thus does he make him equal to him, for by proceeding from himself, he became first begotten son, because begotten before all things, and his only begotten also, because alone begotten of God, 
in a way peculiar to himself from the womb of his own heart. Okay, so what's all this saying? You, I, I think basically the way to understand Tertullian's uh, understanding of where the son came from, he imagines that in eternity past, God, that is God the Father, is alone and simple, and he has wisdom like inside his own head, right? And his wisdom, he is contemplating wisdom inside himself, but then at the beginning of all time, right, when, when God says, let there be light, the wisdom, which was previously inside his head, gets spoken out and becomes its own thing, which is now the word. And instead of just being God's words, it's like a person. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus, right? So while previously the word was inside God, and that's when it's wisdom, it goes from being an internal wisdom to an external logos when God speaks at the beginning of time. And then at, it's like it's like the first event in the Big Bang is God begetting the sun. And then afterwards, everything else happens because of the sun. So, so the if you know your later controversies about Arianism and Trinitarianism, one of the big no-nos from that controversy is to believe that there is a time when the sun was not, or to believe that the sun had an origin in time. But Tertullian thinks that, um, that the sun did have an origin in time, that he was begotten as an event, right? He doesn't believe in, in, in eternal begetting. He believes that in eternity past, the sun was wisdom inside God's head. And then at some point at the, in Genesis, he comes out. Well, to go back to our, to when we were discussing his biography about him being almost perceived as a materialist, this would be almost a materialist explanation of how Jesus became. Okay, mm -hmm. and yes, I could see as time went on and people are reading this, going uh, hard pass. That's 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 a no no. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because if, if, if Jesus and the Holy Spirit are part of the triune God, then they were there from the beginning. And what, what he does is he, he, pulls, he pulls a fast one and says, yeah, they're part of the triune God, but he sort of came in this way. Right. Well, originally there was a unipersonal God, right? Right. And, right. and the unipersonal God uh, yeah. speaks out a son. Yeah. And then the sun gets out the spirit, right? It's like, I would almost think of it, I think of it kind of like Russian dolls, right? Yeah. Like at the beginning of time, there was one Russian doll and then yeah. the Russian doll opens and there's a second smaller Russian doll, which is like right. a copy of the first one, but smaller. And then the second Russian doll gets out a third Russian doll, right? And this happens like in a sequence, right? Yeah. Th that I, I think that's how he understands the Trinity to, to work. Well, I, I, so what we need to do is, is be honest to say that, that you have Tertullian here trying to conceive the Trinity. And of course, at that time, there are no really any schools of, of theology or scripture, okay? So that he's not bumping into someone who's saying, uh, no, that, you know what, um, that's sort of interesting, but you're taking away the ineffability of, of, of Jesus. He's God. Okay. What, what you've made, you, what you've done is you've made him into a thing. Well, no, I haven't. Yes, you have. Because what's happened is the minute that you open up that Russian doll, 
and you say, here's the sun, right? Um, yeah, the sun may have a lot of attributes, but he isn't on the same level as God. He's, right. he's okay. And, now, and Tertullian is very clear that the sun is subordinate, secondary, yeah. um, obedient, and not quite as, not quite as all-powerful. Right there, there. Uh, I'll, we'll get into this maybe a little bit later, but there are yeah. some pretty strong differences between the Son and the Father in Tertullian's theology. Too. Yes, and but I'll also say this is like in academic work on the Trinity. This is called a two-stage logos theory, right? Mm -hmm. Where the first stage is an internal wisdom, and the second stage is an external logos. And Tertullian isn't unique, actually, in this. There are numerous other church fathers. I. I forget the list, but but a lot of other church fathers in the late first or the late second and early third century also have this two-stage logos theory. Um, and I mean, honestly, I think where it comes from is if you know your Greek mythology, where does Athena come from? Athena, what mm -hmm. comes from Zeus's head, right? right. Uh, Athena originates as Zeus's wisdom, who then comes out from Zeus as, uh, you know, Athena is the goddess of wisdom, right? So the goddess of wisdom comes out of Zeus's head, right, in, in a special begetting. And I, I, I think that this is basically just a Christianized version of that, that same myth, basically. Oh, yeah, that, that, that one, too, is exactly it. And yeah. what, you, what you have is a guy who says he didn't like Socrates and he didn't like Greek philosophy smuggling it in all over the place okay yes. and and you sit there and you you know i had to read it twice because there's some i i'd start having dissonance with what i was reading i say hold it yes you clearly say a but then you implicitly say b and i'm not i'm not very comfortable is it a or b okay now on the other hand i think he does some some interesting um apologetics so Later in his book, he, he says, held it. Um, in Genesis 126, let us make God in our own image after our own likeness. Whereas he ought to have said, let us make man in my own image and after my own likeness as a unique and singular being. That, th that's, a, that's a pretty powerful... Well, what he's doing is he's criticizing what uh, Praxis yeah. believes, right? Absolutely. The, the, the second half of that sentence is saying, and Praxis, if what you believe is true then instead of God saying, let us make man in our own image, if you think they're all one person, then he should right. have said, let me make man in my image. But right. what's interesting, like, so let us make man in our image, right? Tertullian interprets that as the father speaking to the son, mm -hmm. right? And what when I hear most modern Trinitarians talk about, you know, like when they hear, hey, Sam, you don't believe in the Trinity, one passage that will come to their minds fairly quickly, well, what about in Genesis when God says, let us make man in our image? And I think most modern Trinitarians associate that as like, God, the singular, is speaking to God, the plural, right? God himself, the one that's kind of behind all of them, speaks to all three persons collected. It's like, God me said to God us, let yeah. us make man in our image or something like that. That's actually how most modern Trinitarians interpret it. Like God can speak in the singular sense and the plural sense simultaneously because he's three in one. That's not what Tertullian does. Tertullian is it's the father talking to the son. Mm -hmm. um, and the spirit, it, it, I think, too, actually. Yeah, right. Um, and I, I think that, um, however, I think. If you're 
you know, as a biblical Unitarian, one has to do a strong hermeneutic on that, that verse and say, what does that us mean? Uh, well, Tertullian gives me the answer. He says that the Jews understand it, that God is talking to the angels. And that's actually a, a pretty common scholarly opinion that, that that's actually what it meant in its original context. Mm -hmm. So so that's my answer for the record internet. God is talking to his council of angels when he says, let us make man in our image. But anyway. <laughs> let us. Well, that's that, not that what the Jews think. That, 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 you can that, ask Jacob. That, 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 that would assume that the angels were, were involved in making, making the earth. Well, no comment. <laughs> and that the angels <laughs> and that the angels are in the image of God, right? That's a, that's See, this is the kind of dialogue idea. you need. You, you, you know what? You, you stick a pit in my balloon, and I, I, I'm happy to, 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 to give as a, well as receive. But I mean, what it means is this. I think it means that you have to have dialogue on a very touchy, a lot tougher subject than most people think it is, and understand that you have to have biblical humility. Mm -hmm. Because... Now, I can sit there and point to that. You can say, well, it's the angels. I can say, well, what about this? And you can say, what about that? And then finally, what you do is you get to the end of the line. They say, you know what? I really can't say. I don't have 100% assurity on this thing. Um, and so what you do is you get someone like Tertullian, who's very clever. I think he's a very cl sharp, clever guy, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is how it is. God's talking to his son. That makes sense. And you know what? In, his, in the context of how he grew up, sure, it makes sense because he, Zeus and Athena, that, that is such a, you know, and one thing that I would say to Christians of all faith traditions, you need to, tr you need to really study Greek mythology. If, you, if you're not, you're, 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 you're not understanding some of the thoughts that we still live with today. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it has to be tossed out, but it's, it's interesting. And then um, the other thing that he starts talking about the son is he goes right with uh, Justin Martyr on God has been always invisible. It, yes. He, okay. He's this, very clear on that. This is a, this is a big, so I have a, I have a really big quote to read and it's about theophanies and then about the okay. incarnation. Um, I feel like, I, this is going to be a relatively long quote, but I feel like there's so much to unpack um, that that it really has kind of all of Tertullian's mm -hmm. Trinitarian theology in a really good nutshell. And mm -hmm. so we can maybe unpack this for a little bit of time. I'll even, let's see here, I think I'll, can I share my screen for those um, who are watching? Um, they will be able to read this. If you're just listening on the podcast, I'll do my, my best to um, articulate myself clearly. But if you're watching, this might make it easier. All right. So, um, for he it was who at all times came down to hold converse with men. For Adam on the patriarchs and the prophets... For Adam onto the patriarchs and the prophets, in vision, in dream, in mirror, in dark saying, ever from the beginning, laying the foundations of the course of his dispensations, which he meant to follow out to the very last. Thus was he ever learning, 
even as God, so this is the he is Jesus here, or the pre-incarnate word. So thus was he learning, even as God, to converse with men upon the earth, being no other than the word which was to be made flesh. But he was thus learning, or rehearsing, in order to level for us the way of faith, that we might the more readily believe that the Son of God had come down into the world. For if we knew that in times past also something similar had been done. For as it was on our account and for our learning that these events are described in the scriptures, so for our sakes also were they done. In this way, it was that even then he knew full well what human feelings and affections were, intending as he always did to make upon him man's actual competent substance, body and soul, making inquiry of Adam as if he were ignorant. Where are you, Adam? Genesis 3, 9, repeating that he had been made a man, uh, repenting, oh, sorry, repenting that he had made man as if he had lacked foresight, tempting Abraham as if ignorant of what was in man, offended with persons and then reconciled to them, and what other weaknesses and imperfections the heretics lay hold of in their assumptions as unworthy of God in order to discredit the creator, not considering that these circumstances are suitable enough for the son, who was one day to experience even human sufferings, hunger and thirst and tears and actual birth, real death, and in respect of such a dispensation made by the father a little less than the angels. But the heretics, you may be sure, will not allow that those things are suitable even to the son of God, which you are imputing to the father himself. You, he means praxius there. When you pretend that he made himself less than the angels on our account, whereas the scripture informs us that he who is made less was, also, was so affected by another and not by himself. What again, if he was one who was crowned with glory and honor and he another by whom he was crowned, the son, in fact, by the father, Moreover, how come it to pass that the almighty invisible God, whom no man has seen nor can see, who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, he who dwells not in temples made with hands, but before whose sight the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax, who holds the whole world in his hands like a nest, Isaiah 10.14, whose throne is heaven and earth his footstool, Isaiah 66.1, in whom is every place, but himself is in no place, who is, the un, who is the utmost bound of the universe. However happens, I say, that he, who though the most high, should yet have walked in paradise towards the cool of the evening, in quest of Adam, and should have shut up the ark after Noah had entered in it, and at Abraham's tent should have refreshed himself under an oak, and have called to Moses out of the burning bush, and have appeared as the fourth in the furnace of the Babylonian monarch, although he is there called the son of man. Unless all these events had happened as an image, as a mirror, as an enigma of the future incarnation, surely even these things could not have been believed even of the son of God, unless they had been given us in scriptures. Possibly also they could not have been believed of the father, even if they had been given in the scriptures, since these men bring, down, bring him down into Mary's womb and set before Pilate's judgment seat and bury him in the sepulcher of Joseph. 
Hence, therefore, their error becomes manifest for being ignorant that the entire order of the divine administration has from the very first had its course through the agency of the Son. They believe that the Father himself was actually seen and held converse with men and worked and was thirsty and suffered in spite of the prophet who says, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth shall never thirst at all nor be hungry, Isaiah 40, 28. Much more shall neither die at any time nor be buried. And therefore that it was uniformly one God, even the father who at all times did himself the things which were really done by him through the agency of the son. All right. That's a big monster quote, and it's a little bit confusing, but I think I can explain what's going on here. And it's, I, the, I think like so much early Christian history is packed into this quote, and it really helps illuminate what the argument over the doctrine of the Trinity was, and kind of, I would almost even say what the purpose of the doctrine of the Trinity was, is so Marcion, who we've talked about before in our episode with Irenaeus and who um, Tertullian writes a book against Marcion. Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God and that the God of the New Testament is a different, better God and that Jesus was sent by the different, better God. And Marcion had a book called Antitheses, right? Where he took quotes from the Old Testament about God doing something bad or evil or dumb in his opinion. And then a quote from the New Testament about God being different to show that the gods were different. Like, like Tertullian brings up the fact that God seemingly changes his mind every once in a while in the Old Testament, or God repents of making man, right? Like uh, Marcion said, look, that's obviously not the best God, right? The good God would never change his mind. The good God would never do something like that so that we can clearly see the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. And Praxius, on the other hand, is saying that Jesus is God himself, right? And he is the same person as the Father in human form, right? And so what Tertullian is doing is splitting a middle road. He is saying that the reason why God does some questionable things in the Old Testament is that it's not actually God the Father, it's God the Son, and that the Son needs to learn things even before his incarnation, right? Which is a really weird idea that the son is learning how to do things prior to the incarnation. And that when God changes his mind, that's the son. That's not the true high God, right? When he says, you know, these things are would not be fitting for the father, even if scripture taught them, he's agreeing with Marcion that some of the things that happen in the Old Testament are unbefitting of the one true God, but he doesn't think they were the one true God. He thinks they were God's son, right? And so some of the different, so, so why can God be both visible and invisible? Well, God the Father is invisible, but God the Son is the one who appears and does stuff. And God the Father is accomplishing things through the agency of the Son, right? God the Father is sort of like the one true high God who sits back on his throne and is perfect. He doesn't need anything. He could never suffer. He could never be thirsty. He could never die or be buried or any of those silly sorts of things like Praxius thinks happened to him. But unlike Marcion, who separates the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, uh, 
Tertullian thinks the God of the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate son. And then we see in the New Testament, the incarnate son who reveals to us the invisible God that we hadn't really known about before. It, 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 it's, it's really weird and strange to actually understand what he's saying, but that's what he's saying. Well, so Tertullian is struggling as Marcion did, but Marcion had a heretical answer and, um, with, the, with, with the actions of, you know, anybody who, the actions of God, anyone who reads Job, right, goes, hey, man, this is completely unfair. Yeah. <laughs> what did this guy ever do to you? Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and the book of Job, many biblical scholars think that was probably the first book of the, of the, of the Bible. Okay, and you struggle with the problem of evil. And throughout the thousands of years, especially of Christianity, you've had Augustine, you know, you've had C.S. Lewis, you've had others who have tried to address this issue. And the issue is very difficult to address. So Tertullian, what he does is he goes down to call to the heck and says, we're going to this is an easy place for me to park the car. Mm -hmm. I'm going to park it right here. Okay. And the problem is for me, that's a very unsatisfied place to park your car. It's a because, weird place. It's a weird yeah. place. Yeah. Well, because, well, it, so modern Christians will often struggle with the character of God in the old Testament, right? Like, Back in Tertullian's day, the things that they didn't like about the God of the Old Testament was that he would change his mind or that he seemingly had human passions, right? Like human emotions get attributed to God. Those right. were the things that they thought were unbefitting of a, of a really good God. And that's sort of a platonic idea, right? A true God would be impassable and unchangeable yep. and all those things, yep. right? In modern Christianity, we, we struggle with the morality, I think, more than the quality, right? Like there's genocides in the Old Testament seemingly condemned and are con condoned and ordered by God and the tempting and testing of Job, all of these things. We have a moral argument, right, with the God of the of the Old Testament sometimes. And there's but it's a moral ways. argument based on a Christian epistemology that the yes. people who are making the moral argument don't want to. Yes. don't want to uh, live up to, okay? Right. And Tom mm -hmm. Holland's book basically explodes that kind of, uh, of, of moral epistemology that people are sitting there going, well, how can you, you know, A, how you could do this? And then you look 2000 years ago and the, the, the Christians of, those, of that time, Tertullian's like, God's showing emotion, man. That's so wrong. Yeah. You don't yeah. change your mind. That's so wrong. Okay, right. that has to be not the one true God, but but the son who needs right. to learn and grow. And it's like it's like the Old Testament is Jesus's training to get ready to, to learn about human beings, to learn to practice creating things. And so some of the reasons why the God in the Old Testament messes up or or does some things unbefitting of, of a good God is because it's not the good God. It's it's Jesus. Yes. Right. Which is a very funny answer to the question. Right. And, and I would say that theology almost is more about us rather than God, okay? 
it's more of the biases in our culture that we impute into God than who God, quote unquote, I'll use this term, really is, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so I almost see theologians as blind men grappling with an elephant mm -hmm. and trying to describe God by grabbing the tail or the toenail or the, or the, or the, uh, or the trunk, right? And no, it's, you know, it's be careful, be humble. And so Tertullian is definitely not humble, mm -hmm. but he's very interesting. Um, yeah. And um, one of the things that he, uh, you know, he, he um, one of the things that he brings up, which I find interesting, which has always given me the idea of the Trinity is, is something he, he requires us to baptize into the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not into a universal God. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it is not on, once only, but three times that we are immersed into three persons at each several mention of their names. I should give the Orthodox credit. They'll point out that the Orthodox still do triple immersion, whereas you Latins forgot to do your three dunkings and you only do one dunking. <laughs> so and Tertullian attests to triple dunking. Just that's the right. The church, the church needs to update that portion of the, uh, of the baptism. <laughs> um, uh, although I don't know if I'd want to do it the way they do it in, uh, in, in Haiti, where they dunk you until the demon's out. Um, <laughs> so the, um, but what you have also is he's, um, he, he basically starts talking about essence, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he, obviously he knew Greek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he go, another, yeah, that, another, that's an important thing to mention. I think that Tertullian was fluent in Latin and Greek. He wrote in yeah. Latin for a Latin speaking audience. Right. But I think unlike most people in Carthage, he was educated enough to be fluent in right. Greek and even Greek theology and philosophy. Right. So something we should be aware of a hundred years later, when St. Jerome comes on the scene, right. With Augustine, 100, 150 years later, very few people understand Greek. Now it's scholars only mm -hmm. that understand Greek. And so, you know, St. Jerome is now tasked with writing the Vulgate because we've got, you know, we need something that clearly um, translates the Greek into Latin. Right, right. Okay. Whereas in Tertullian's time, you didn't need that because the Scot the people who were still involved in the church mm -hmm. in the right. Latin like, side understood like a, An interesting thing, like in the days of uh, the first and second century, the common language spoken in the city of Rome was Greek, you know? What language, when Paul writes a letter to the Romans, what language is it in? Greek. When, when Clement of Rome, the Bishop of Rome is writing letters, what language are they in? They're in Greek. But yeah. um, as the empire starts to decline, and as there becomes a greater separation between East and West, and especially after Constantine moves the capital from Rome to Constantinople, and the city of Rome itself is sort of left neglected, um, Greek becomes less and less spoken in the Western part of the empire to the point where Augustine, who's super well-educated, actually doesn't really speak very good Greek. I don't think he spoke any better of Greek than I do. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, so what's interesting is that Tertullian is sort of a transition point because Africa 
because Africa, like I said, was settled after the Punic Wars by people right. from Italy, it was less connected to the Greek part of the emperor empire and was settled by kind of um, soldiers probably and common Italian folk who spoke Latin. So that's why Carthage is a Latin speaking place. But Tertullian being a well-educated person can speak Greek and Latin, but later on, a couple hundred years later, that will be a rare skill. Yeah, so it's, it, what's interesting is, um, by the way, Tertullian likes to use your favorite word, transfigure. Yeah. Um, well, we, we should talk about substance, because- Yeah, let's do that. So, because one of Tertullian's things is that he, he thinks that, well, I'll, I'll point out a couple things. He doesn't like the word same substance, Right, because he associate because the Gnostics in their cosmologies use the word same substance, consubstantial, to talk about how the gods are related to each other, and he doesn't like that they're um, thinking on that. He insists that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one substance, right? Mm -hmm. Una substantia, one right. substance together. Yep. And he often talks about them not being separated from each other. So like, he, like you've said, um, Tertullian sometimes is almost so concrete-minded in the way that he thinks that he almost seems like a materialist, right? Yeah. He, uh, and that I think he imagines like when the father speaks out the son, that it's like a glob of his own stuff. And like, you can almost imagine like Plato or something, you know, gooing out from the father, but it never gets cut apart into two separate globs of Plato. Right there's like there's two persons, but they're still con connected in one piece of God stuff, and then the Holy Spirit is also still part of God stuff, and that they're like one substance all together. It's like three persons in one substance, which is kind of similar, right, to the Nicene Creed and later Trinitarianism. Yeah. Although, as we've said, there he thinks it happens in time, and he thinks the Son in, is in second place, very subordinate to the Father, and the Spirit's in third place, subordinate to the other two. So he has some other things that make him heretical, but this one substance idea is kind of something that is similar to later orthodoxy, and he's one of the first people, because Justin Martyr didn't really talk about substance. Irenaeus didn't really talk about substance. They use different language to describe the connections. But Tertullian really kind of gets into the substance stuff, right? right. Like, the, you know, the, the, the reason why there's one God for Tertullian, right? Because, you know, this is a constant critique that he's having to face from Praxius. Praxius is like, look, there's only one God. Right. And so, yeah, I may collapse the persons into one person, but you can't say I don't believe in one God. And so Tertullian has to defend the idea of monotheism, and he does it in two ways, really. He does it with the idea of monarchy, right? There's a big chapter where he talks about the monarchy of the father. And, and my friend Bo Branson, who's been on the channel, is a big proponent of this idea as an answer to how Trinitarians can be monotheists. And there's actually another guy, Dr. Joshua Sijuade, who uh, I'm going to have on my channel hopefully sometime soon, who's also a big supporter of the idea of the monarchy of the father as an explanation for monotheism in a Trinitarian theology, is that the one God, in a certain sense, is really just the father, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's in charge of the whole thing. Like what makes someone a God in the highest sense of the word is being the source of everything and being in charge of everything. 
and the father is in charge of everything and the source of everything. So while the son and the spirit are made of God's stuff, that is that they're divine, um, only the father is the source of the other two, and only the father is in charge, and he rules through the son and the spirit. It's sort of like saying, um, uh, like, there's one president, there's a vice president and a secretary of state. And so, yeah, while there's three government officials, there's only one president, right? And the president operates through the vice president and operates through the secretary of state and sends them around. And yeah, they kind of are their own person, but they're acting on the authority of the one person. And that's kind of how, how Tertullian understands monotheism, is that God the Father is the source of the power of the Son and the Spirit, and they do his will. So when they do stuff, it's not like they're doing something other than God, because they're in perfect cooperation with the Father. So that, that's one of the ways that he defends monotheism, is by emphasizing the monarchy, or uh, the sole rule, right, of the Father. The other way that he defends monotheism is that even while the Son and the Spirit are separate persons, they're, they're part of God's stuff, right? And they don't get separated off because it's like, yeah, they're a glob of God Play-Doh that comes out from God, but they never get cut apart into something different. So it's almost like they're parts of the same one God stuff. Right. I, I, it's kind of weird to explain, but I, I think that, that, yeah, I think that's what he thinks. Well, this is, children, this is a problem with materialism. Because at the end, you run into this, you go back into the cul-de-sac. And what you're doing is you're just taking your car and you're spinning in a circle. And you never can get out of that circle because you've allowed the materialism to take control over everything else. So, and we see this so much now in modern Christianity, okay? Um, and, and why there's such dislocations and things going on. So yes, um, uh, I mean, there's some things that I saw, there's many, many parts of Tertullian's writings that I thought were really sharp, mm -hmm. okay? There are other things that I'm like, uh, no. And once you understand, we have to put everybody into a frame. You don't want to reduce them. But the frame I would put Tertullian is, some, is a realist, a materialist, mm -hmm. okay? Um, which makes him unusual with, with our early church fathers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because he doesn't like Platonism. He doesn't right. want to get too dualistic, right, with right. A, a heaven that's too different from earth or right. a, a pure spiritual realm that's too different from the material realm. But he almost goes in pretty far in the opposite direction of right. just kind of imagining God in this world, right? Kind of at some people have compared him to stoicism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like I sent you that video, Dale Tuggy who's a, a unitarian, a biblical unitarian philosopher, has a, a provocative paper and video called uh, Tertullian the Unitarian, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, kind of arguing that Tertullian, while he does use the words Trinity and does have three persons in the one God stuff, at the end of the day, he thinks the one God is the one person, the Father, right? Like, 
Uh, and But he also, um, I think Dale Tuggy brings out a good point that the Stoics thought that divinity was like a, a fine material that was in the material world, right? And divinity was like the smallest thing so it could permeate everything else. They were sort of almost pantheists or panentheists. You're welcome, Luke. Um, and and that Tertullian sometimes seems seems to talk like a Stoic in terms of God just being a material in the physical universe or something like that. Right. And Tertullian, I don't believe, means to do this, but he takes away God's ineffability mm. by doing that. Okay. Um I would assume someone like Pajot would read Tertullian and say, wrong, 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 you know, just wrong, yeah. okay? Um, and many times I was doing, what? Wrong, okay. Um, it's but like the I very wanted... places where you think he's wrong is probably the very places where I think he's right. <laughs> Correct. That's right. Yeah, you know. I mean, he's kind of in between us, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he's kind of mm -hmm. in between a biblical Unitarian and in between a modern Trinitarian. Like he, he emphasizes subordination. He emphasizes the uniqueness of God the Father over and against the, the, the Son and the Spirit. Um, and what's really funny is in against Praxius, a lot of his arguments are arguments that I make because he's arguing with Praxius, who thinks that the Father and the Son are kind of the same person, really, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And so he pulls a lot of my favorite verses when yeah. I argue with Trinitarians, and he shows that to, to show the point that the Father and the Son are different, and not right. just different persons, but different in their operations and different in their qualities. And, right. and so there's a lot of times where I'm reading Tertullian, I'm like, oh, that was a good argument, Tertullian. I think I'm going to have to remember that the next time I argue with a Trinitarian. That was a good point. Yes. <laughs> oh, he does. Like I said, you could tell he's very well trained as a, mm -hmm. a lawyer. But, you know, he also looks at John 8, 16 and says uh, he declares that he's not alone and uses these words. But I and the father that sent me, does that not show that they are two, which mm -hmm. makes your argument? Yeah two and yet inseparable right and and that's that, make, and that's yeah. that thing about them being the one substance right that never gets cut apart right yeah. that, that inseparable thing he brings yeah. up a lot yeah if we if we if we take away the the comma two yet inseparable you're very happy but then yeah. he puts that in and you're not so happy okay <laughs> but tertullian what he does for me it's just like this material what he's trying to do she's trying to scale up to God and figure out how God did this, right? And, and I'm at the position, it's not up, to, up. To, God may not want you to understand this, okay? You know, uh, one, one verse you might want to look at again is Isaiah, where says, God says, my ways are not your ways. Um, and so, but what's interesting is what he does is he kicks the he he kicks starts this whole conversation on the Trinity with the early church fathers. Mm. This this thing his writing against Praxius ain't going away. Yeah. All right. It it, it whether he's a, a heretic or not, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's this thing has this is a a a a. a this has legs. It certainly, um, I think it has um, 
reading Augustine has some impact on Augustine, but Augustine tosses away the materialism because he's a Platonist. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Right. And what, what is the and church? Most, most of the other church fathers, like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, are Platonist or Platonist enough where they don't make some of these things, even if they are um, subordinationist, like the way Tertullian is, they're not nearly as materialist in the way they talk yeah. about and describe the Trinity. Okay. I, I almost think Tertullian's an Aristotelian. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, like an Aristotelian Stoic kind of thing, even though he hates the Stoics and hates Aristotle and hates Plato, you, you can't escape the world that you, you can't escape the, the water that you swim in. No, no, you may not like the water. You'd like it to be cleaner, but it is the water that you swim in. So uh, how do you want to wind this up, Sam? All right. How about, uh, here's an interesting idea. How about I read the Nicene Creed and talk about what Tertullian would agree with and what he would disagree with, right? Kind of as, uh, kind of as, so I'll read the, and this is the text of the Nicene Creed from the actual Council of Nicaea, the, the one that most people recite in churches from the Council of Constantinople 60 years afterwards. So this is the, the first text of the actual Council of Nicaea in 325. So we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And this is honestly the point that uh, Dale Tuckey makes is, honestly, the Nicene Creed is actually more Unitarian than people realize. The, the, who, who is the one God in the Nicene Creed? Well, it's the Father Almighty, right? It's not, God isn't the Trinity, God is the Father, right? And this is something that Tertullian very much agrees with. Whenever he uses the word God unqualified, and he actually has a very interesting section that we might not get into about how to use the word God, that there are multiple ways to use the word God, and that he goes through the different ways of using the word God, which is actually pretty interesting. But anyway, so we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Tertullian would say, amen, sounds great. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. And Tertullian would be like, well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I like the light from light stuff. Uh, I like the very God from very God stuff. Of course, he was begotten. I'm not sure why you're distinguishing begotten and made. Tertullian would find that, that um, phrase curious. And consubstantial with the Father, he would be like, no, consubstantial. That's the that's the that's the word that the Gnostics use. We he's one substance with the Father. He's not of the same substance because that would imply that the substance got separated. He's one substance with the Father. He wouldn't like the consubstantial part. Um, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth. He would feel like, yeah, that's fine. Um, for us, uh, so, yeah. And so the, so the rest of it. Uh, but so then there's the anathemas of the Nicene Creed. But those who say there was a time when he was not and that he was not before he was made, or that he was of nothing, or he's of another substance, let them be anathema, right? Or, or that the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable. He, Tertullian would be like, what do you mean there was a time when the Son, of course there was a time when the Son was not, you know? He, he gets begotten out of the Father's mind when he speaks, so of course there was a time when God, when the Son didn't exist. And of course, the son of God is changeable or alterable. Why do you think that he changes his mind, right? <laughs> you know, like, like I read in that quote, he thinks that God can change his mind because the son can change, 
right? Uh, unlike the father who's perfect and never changes, the son is the one that's capable of change. So he would he would half agree and half strongly disagree with the Council of Nicaea in some interesting and important ways, which is, I think, an interesting point. Well, again, the Council of Nicaea was created for this very purpose. Right. And that's what people need to remember. This is, Constantine was going nuts because he's, oh, I'm a Christian, things are fine now. Mm -hmm. What are you guys arguing about? It was all uh, the argument about the nature of God as being either unipersonal or triune God. Mm -hmm. And well, I would say the argument wasn't about that at first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it was about whether the sun was eternal or not, whether the sun mm -hmm. was created or not. And, and honestly, when you think about Tertullian, you can help understand like Tertullian thinks God is, you know, there's mm -hmm. one God and that there are three persons that are God. Right. And that they somehow are one substance together. He's fine with a trinity in that sense. But he, the parts that he would disagree with the Nicene Creed over are, are the one substance versus consubstantial. He wouldn't like that word. And over whether there was a time when the sun was not. And Tertullian clearly thinks that there was a time when the sun was not, right? The Athanasian group said, no, God is eternally a father and the son is eternally begotten. And the Arian group said, no, that doesn't make any sense. There was a time when God was alone and he was the one true God by himself. And then the son comes into being. Right. That was what the argument was about. And actually, right. Arius, people forget this, Arius used the word Trinity all the time. Arius mm -hmm. would have described his views as a Trinity. He just disagreed over how the how the Trinity worked, not whether or not there was a Trinity. Yeah. And, and same and, with Tertullian. I would say this is something that we could chew on a bit later on, is that when we when I think of the Trinity in materialistic terms I, i'm messing up mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are creatures bounded by time god is not if god's not bounded by time well tertullian thinks the father isn't bounded by time but the son is bounded by yeah. time well <laughs> yeah well <laughs> right <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. part of the weirdness yeah 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 <laughs> He's trying to have his cake and eat it too, and it ain't. It, it just doesn't well, work out. That's exactly right. He's trying to have the Old Testament needs to be true, and it needs to accurately describe God, but it doesn't describe the God that I want philosophically. So he separates it out into the Father and the Son. Right. The, it, 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 this is the. Isn't it interesting that that's the fight that Tertullian's struggling with? And I think it's also what we see after Darwin with fundamentalism, fundamentalism okay? Mm -hmm. That the God I want is the God that created the earth in six days because that's, it's that materialistic frame. It has to be this way, mm -hmm. okay? And of course, then you have, I'm gonna mention a name that will trigger somebody I know, John Walton comes in and says, you, you all got it wrong because you're not reading it as the ancient Hebrews would have read it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which I think is what you try to do when you're trying to be a scholar is you look at the history, the religion, the agriculture, everything of the people that you're trying to, because that's how they lived. Um, and God describing the earth as a sphere, they wouldn't have understood what that meant. 
Okay, and I think yeah, well, that actually, he they they would have understood the sphere part because part of part of the quote that I read yeah. is Tertullian thinks that God is the thing that circumvents the globe, right? That God is the thing that's outside and around everything, <laughs> right? So so they understood a circular world with kind of layers mm -hmm. of heaven, and God is the thing that's uncircumscribed, right? The right. the world is inside and in in god you know panentheism if you want luke thompson but uh uh so so they they're fine with that idea it it's just like when i read tertullian it's just one of those things where yeah there's a lot of things that are very similar and very recognizable and mm -hmm. easy to understand and it's like wow it's amazing how little christianity has changed in 1800 years um but there are some times where it's like holy smokes we need to pump the brakes a little bit before we assume we understand what he's saying, because there's something just so different in his mind going on than what we're used to, that we really need to take the time to listen to what he's saying to really understand him. And like, honestly, I think that Tertullian is probably one of the church fathers that's easiest to understand, right? His, he writes yeah. in a very concrete way. He's very articulate. And he, like we've mentioned before, his flavor of theology is kind of similar to American fundamentalists in a lot of ways. And so a lot of Protestants, I think, would find Tertullian to be a very agreeable, a lot of modern American evangelicals would find Tertullian to be a very agreeable church father on many different subjects. Um, there's a couple subjects that they wouldn't like him on, like the Trinity, which is ironic because he's the first person to describe the Trinity. But um, but there are a lot of subjects that he's very similar to modern Christians, especially American Protestants. Like, I think that you could drop Tertullian in a holiness Pentecostal church and he would be like, close enough. I, I, I get it. I have a couple things I'll try and tweak. But yeah, th this is about right. <laughs> yeah. And... and you're right. The faith has not changed in a lot of ways that much, which mm -hmm. is an amazing thing about the faith. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that as we go on to Tertullian next, the next episode, you're going to get that real flavor of how American Protestant he, he, he feels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I mean, he would, he, he was like the guys that were writing in the 70s that, that I was reading in the 70s on InterVarsity Press. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Except his writing style is a little better, clearer, and, and more... And he's smarter uh, than a lot of modern theologians. Far smarter. Okay. Um, and like I said, what I'll leave you with this because I think we should leave with a little sense of humor, right? Um One of my favorite, remember we said he, was, he had, a, you know, he had a, a caustic way of writing, right? Now he's talking about people he doesn't like. Now women have- Which every is often. Member, <laughs> yes, which is often. Now women have every member of the body heavily laden. He didn't like this with gold. He did not think people should be, okay. My, my favorite term, wine bibbing is so common among them that the kiss is never offered with their will and as for divorce, they long for it as if it was a natural consequence of marriage. And I, I read that and I said, suburban Chicago, yeah. suburban Chicago. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, 
you could see someone almost writing in that language and describing yeah. the suburbs of, of, of the United States. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, society has not changed as much as we think it's changed. But it, it, that writing style, you know, you sit there and I saw that and I, I'm chuckling. I'm like, this guy's funny. Um, there there are a lot of times. And what's funny is that sense of humor can be one of those things that doesn't always translate well across time and across cultures. Yeah. But I still think Tertullian's funny sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He, he, um, and he's more impactful, I believe, than, than, than uh, the church, the Roman Catholic Church gives credit for. He is very impactful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, um, we can talk more about different areas of theology that his impact is in next time. But yes. I, I mean, because a question has to be asked, like, why do we have Tertullian's writings at all, let alone so many of them? If he's not a saint and if he was questionably orthodox and if he was associated with this kind of breakaway Montanism movement, why do we have his writings? Why weren't they burnt? Why, why were they kept in monasteries? Why did people keep making copies of them? And I think he was just too popular. I, mm -hmm. I think he was too popular to be canceled, even though he was kind of heretical and was never made a saint. And that there, his, uh, his works always had a popular audience and that they, were, they survived to the modern era because people liked them. I think I think that's that's the answer of why his works were never uh, put to the torch. Right. Um, very interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, anything else, Sam, or is it uh, time to wrap this thing up? <laughs> well, it's time to wrap it up, and next time we can go into uh, Tertullian's theological treatise that he wrote his wife, which I think is just yes. hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Tertullian, the sort of guy who would write a theological treatise to his wife. <laughs> well, I'm going to suggest that the Catholic Church makes her a saint. <laughs> Probably okay. so. It makes her a saint, okay? Being um, married to him doesn't sound totally easy. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know what? Um, it reminds me of, uh, I think, uh, Shakespeare saying, first let us kill all the lawyers. <laughs> I, I'm sure she thought that a few times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All, All right. right. Very good, Sam. Thank you. All right. We'll talk again soon.